You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Good morning. Today's teaching text is from Matthew 9 and Matthew 20, and I'll be reading from Matthew 9. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him, and he asked him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed could not talk what was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And this is Matthew 20, 29 through 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they, were, they received their sight, and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you. So Matthew 9 and Matthew 20 are interesting because they contain nearly identical stories. And each of these stories, you have two blind men. They're both calling Jesus by the same name, Jesus, son of David. You have two healings, and you have two questions. Two questions. If you're looking for a title for this talk, that would be it. Two questions. Do you believe that I can do this? That's the first one. What do you want me to do for you? That's the second. Jesus' method of healing in both cases was a well-timed, pointed question. And in fact, it's questions that seem to be Jesus' primary and preferred method of healing. I find it absolutely fascinating that the resurrected Jesus goes around asking questions, not offering answers. That his followers have just watched him die. Now he's alive again and appearing to them, but he doesn't explain the phenomenon. Instead, he restores each doubting, grieving, disillusioned, newly cynical follower by a question. A unique question that targets their unique brand of pain, invites them deeper into it, and invites healing in the end. Mary's the first that he appears to. The first words of the resurrected Jesus are this. Woman, why are you crying? Those are the first words out of God's mouth after the miracle that's going to turn the tide of human history. A question that targets her grief, invites her to name it, to own it, and to discover him right there in it with her. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus catches up to two disillusioned disciples and says, what are you discussing together as you're walking along? A question that prompts them to recount the biblical promises that they still believe, but they can't square with the event that they've just lived. 
They just watched Jesus crucified. How does that match up with all these promises that he was supposedly fulfilling? And so Jesus asks a question that brings those promises to the surface, invites them to re-engage them in this moment now and to recognize him there with them on the road. To Peter, Jesus asks, do you love me? A question that targets his loyalty. The very source of shame that he's carried ever since that one event in the courtyard. And when he becomes conscious of that shame again, when he feels it as hot as he felt it in his denial, Jesus then says, and you're still the rock I'm going to build the church on. It's healing. You see, God's preferred method of healing is questions, not answers. He's always preferred that way, and he still does. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? That's been the last chapter for our church. It's the ground we've covered together up to this point. What do you want me to do for you? That's the invitation that lies ahead of us. So let's take these questions one at a time. First, do you believe that I am able to do this? Seven years ago when we first planted in this iteration as Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg, this church was so cool. It was so cool that it was a problem. Because cool means that everyone showed up laid back and casual and trying to put up a preferred uh, perception in front of everyone else. Sunday after Sunday, people would fill this room and they would be all laid back and casual and take everything in with very little expression or response and they would receive a benediction and begin sorting out their afternoon plans. And in those days, the few of us that were leading this church began to pray and fast for a sense of the manifest presence and power of God. And that's because when the church gathers together, there's larger potential than just meeting up with a few friends and hopefully podcastable teaching. There is healing and hope and the deepest sort of reawakening for the most tender wounds. I can remember, Gemma, at one point you saying to me, we're just not desperate enough. And around that same time, uh, Gemma had a dream that it was a dream that it was raining indoors in this room. And it was pouring down rain everywhere except where the chairs were set up. So like in the aisles and at the front and in the back, it was just pouring. But those little white Ikea chairs that we'd line up really neat and tidy every Sunday, not a drop was getting on them. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. When he had gone indoors, we can't rush past that bit. Because the primary place of encounter and healing these last seven years have been in here, gathered in this room, in the safety of one another's company, where we've learned to be a family together, a spirit-shaped kind of family that weeps and falls on our knees and shouts with joy in response to God. We have met him everywhere except in the seats when we became undone together. And I can't really trace that back to a starting point. I don't think anyone can. It didn't all happen in a moment. But if I had to trace it back somewhere, I think I would take it back to those prayer rugs. We started putting rugs in the front of the room, and we learned to fall down on our knees, undone in the best way in front of one another. Because we live in a city that tells us to put up a front, to present our preferred selves, and that's who we were to one another at first. And so if we're going to be a people that are formed by an alternative story, we have to undermine that one. How do we do it? Let's be a mess. Let's fall on our knees before God and one another. Let's be a heavenly mess in the midst of a neat and tidy city. And that's who we became. 
And then we began to experience the gift of the prophetic in all of its fun and joy and life. Uh, my friend Pete, who many of you will remember, he came from London, and that was sort of the beginning of that impartation. Remember the teeth story? I've told the teeth story like seven or eight times. If you haven't heard it, just go back and listen to any sermon, and you'll probably catch it if you try three or so. But we don't have time to recount all the stories, but there's story after story of people being ministered to personally and deeply by words from one another as we prayed in response to what God was speaking to us. We became the sort of church where the most important words on any given Sunday were not the prepared words spoken from the stage. They were the prophetic words spoken in prayer from one brother or sister to another. And we also began to celebrate salvation more and more. I'll never forget the Sunday when Josh Romero got baptized. It was a Sunday evening, and he got dunked in that livestock trough that we've repurposed as a, uh, a baptismal pool. And it was liturgical and formal, and it was fun, and everyone was cheering, and then something stunning happened. Someone got out of their seat and came up to him as he was just dripping wet in front of the church and just hugged him and held him and welcomed him into the family. And then another person followed them, and then another person, and then I'm crying my eyes out over here on the front row because there's a line that stretches all the way to the front door of our church with people just waiting to welcome this man into the family of Jesus. And that was the start of this childlike sense of joy that just swept through us, but it wasn't the end. I've talked before about Easter morning 2019 when I woke up and just started going about my normal morning routine, made myself a cup of coffee, opened the scriptures, went on a prayer walk, got to McCarran Park in that prayer walk, uh, had my headphones in, was listening to some worship music in the darkness of the early morning before the sun rose on Easter Sunday, and I was so overcome with the spirit of joy that I began to dance alone in McCarran Park. And I don't mean like, <laughs> like a little sweat, I mean like, someone just put on earth, wind, and fire at the end of this wedding reception, and I can't hold back, and you're like, dancing. It's one of the things I love most about New York. You can do anything in public here. No one bats an eye. And then I walked back. I heard God speak to me at the end of that. This is what I'm going to do next. And I walked back home. My family started waking up, just totally played it casual, pretended that I hadn't had a solo dance party earlier that morning while they were still sleeping. Came here to church on Easter Sunday. This is what I'm doing next. I just couldn't quite make sense of it. And Easter Sunday is kind of a, a big, long, exhausting day as a pastor. So I'm trying to center myself during the first worship song of the first of three services because I'm going to be talking over and over and over again all day long. And then I feel one of those Ikea chairs bump me in the back of the leg. And I turn and look. And it's Kaiser, one of our elders, pushing chairs out of the way, making his way toward the front. He's probably the most straight-laced guy I know. Like, this is, this is the leader of the transition process guy. I mean, you know, this is the, the marketing agency president guy, and he is pushing chairs out of the way to dance at the front of our church in the first song on Easter Sunday. And I don't mean like a little sway. I'm talking earth, wind, and fire at the wedding reception, dancing. And it was just an outpouring of joy. Oh, this is what I'm doing next. I see it now. And then finally, there was a house of prayer in Brooklyn. Do it again, Lord, this time in Brooklyn. Remember that? That became a mantra around here. 
We were going to become a people of prayer. And over the years, we have grown foolish enough to take Jesus seriously and all the lavish promises he makes when it comes to prayer. And so we've become a people that bank everything on those promises. And I mean, man, we have prayed. We've prayed in a prayer room upstairs and in holy ground of our own making. We've prayed in prayer hubs on Brooklyn street corners. And we prayed in a uh, storefront that we spent every last penny on. We have prayed early in the morning and we have gathered in here and prayed at midnight. Do it again, Lord. This time in Brooklyn. Those are just a few of the defining moments uh, along our journey that have brought us to this point. And of course, you've got personal moments, formative encounters woven into each of those larger communal themes that I've just recounted. So why don't we just pause for a second and just allow God to bring a few of those more personal moments to mind. Just to point out moments that were pivotal in your journey that are woven into our journey. We're just not desperate enough. And then we became desperate. Not desperate out of lack. I mean, we weren't starving. We became desperate out of hunger. It was like we had already eaten our fill and we just kept saying, more please, more please, more please. Do you believe that I am able to do this? That's the question Jesus asked them after he'd brought them indoors into the safety of the believing community. And what he asked us in here in the safety of one another's company. Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And according to our collective faith, we've begun to see again, to see God for how good he really is and to desire more of him. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Isn't that what these last seven years have been about? I mean, hasn't God shown you who he really is in this place and invited you to trust him like a child again, even though you've grown old? Our journey to this point has been simply about learning to answer yes to that simple and straightforward question. Yes, Jesus, I believe you're able to do this. I believe that you see me, love me, have the power to heal me, and actually want to heal me. And so if nothing else can I just remind you how profoundly good the last chapter's been? How awesome the God is who's been guiding us and how special of a community you have been a part of here. The last chapter has been unforgettable and we can't stay there. Once Peter uh, asked Jesus in this euphoric moment of his transfiguration on a mountain, should we build tents here? Translation, should we stay here forever? Should we make this moment last forever? Should we live day in and day out on this mountaintop experience? Should we just keep rereading the last chapter? And before he could even get that question out, the voice of God, the audible voice of God interrupted him. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Translation, Pete, don't try to hold on to the moment. Follow the God who's on the move. It echoes Deuteronomy chapter 1. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough on this mountain. 
that was a command that was both literal and figurative. It was literal because God was really inviting them to move to a new geographical location to set up camp in a new place. But it was also symbolic because mountains carry heavy imagery throughout the biblical narrative. Mountains are representative of the nearness of God, of the felt experience of his presence, and mountains are representative of separation from the world, of a distance from the chaos of other people and all of their problems. So mountains are separation for and separation from in the biblical story. They're separation for God and separation from the mess. After the transfiguration where Peter wanted to build tents, Jesus leads them back down the mountain and immediately they encounter an epileptic teenager who the disciples can't heal and his father is openly confessing doubt and skepticism that any of this is real at all. It's a mess down there, but we can't stay on the mountain. After that, it's only a few days until Jesus gets crucified in front of their stunned, fear-ridden faces. It is a mess down there. But the greatest miracle, the resurrection, it happened in the mess, not on the mountain. And it required disorientation before it became celebration. It included people who had fallen in love with God on the mountaintop, getting acquainted with God among the mess. See, the last chapter has been unforgettable, but we cannot stay there. We can't live there forever because there's a new question being posed to us by that same familiar shepherd's voice. What do you want me to do for you? So the second story we read is nearly identical to the first. Uh, same characters. There's two blind men in need of healing. Same name. Lord Jesus, son of David. Same faith. Yes, we believe. We believe you can do this. Will you have mercy on us so that we can see? And the same ending. He heals them. I mean, it's more or less the exact same story, except for one thing. The setting. Because this time around, Jesus doesn't invite them indoors. It's the same exact miracle, but does, it does not occur in the privacy and safety of known company in here. It goes down out there, on the street, in the city. It's more or less the same story, only this time it's happening in public. Church, the same God you've encountered in here is now inviting you to know him out there. The greatest stories of chapter one, they all happened in here. The greatest stories of chapter two are gonna happen out there. To say it biblically, you've stayed long enough on this mountain. Let's get to know the God of the mountaintop among the mess. That's his invitation. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, stop, because that bit's important. Jericho is approximately 15 miles from Jerusalem. It's the last major stop and a long, long journey. What do you mean? What's the journey? Well, scholars will point out that all three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have a decisive turn, a hinge point, somewhere right in the middle. See, part one of every gospel story is the ministry of Jesus. That is random teaching and random miracles in random villages. Part two is preparing for the end, when all of a sudden he stops all the talk about a kingdom and starts talking constantly about his death. When he begins preparing the disciples for the disorientation of life without them and then the celebration of the giving of the spirit that is to follow. Luke states it most literally in chapter nine of his gospel. He says, as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So part two in every gospel story is a journey Jesus is making from all those random villages back into the capital. 
Part two is where the force of the story changes from miracles and teaching in random places to a very intentional journey with a very intentional mission. And Jericho is the last mile marker before they see the Jerusalem skyline. It's the end of the road trip where you sit up in your seat a little bit because it's been hours, but you're almost there. And they're leaving Jericho. What we are reading here is the first steps of the triumphal entry. It's the steps to the capital that are gonna culminate in an impromptu parade with people singing and dancing in the streets like their team just won the World Cup and pulling their robes off and throwing them on the ground and ripping branches out of trees just so the hooves of his colt don't have to touch the ground. This is the beginning of Jesus' coronation as king. It's his triumphant arrival. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Shh, don't bother the rabbi, he's on a mission. He's going to make his acceptance speech as the leader of the world to come. He's just passing through on the way to, the, to a throne that he will never vacate. He's got bigger things going on right now than your personal issues, so just keep it down. Be glad that you were close enough to hear the commotion of him passing by. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. And I have to imagine that was frustrating for the disciples. Jesus slowed down. He stopped the victory parade for a couple blind beggars. I mean, it had to be frustrating for the disciples. Already on this very journey to Jerusalem, Jesus has tried to explain to them he is going to reign, but it's on a cross and not on a throne. And Peter rebuked Jesus. No, 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 Rabbi, you don't get it. You're the Savior. You win. We win. Get behind me, Satan. That's how Jesus shut him up. Immediately before our story in the text, James and John have approached Jesus privately to negotiate about the size and location of their thrones when he chooses his royal cabinet in the new kingdom. Jesus is going to die, and they're arguing about the org chart. And that's just Jesus' inner ring. That's his core three. We're in part two, remember? The days of random miracles and random villages are over. Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem somewhere back there. He's more president at the end of a, of a runaway campaign than he is gypsy healer at this point in the story. And now they're close enough to Jerusalem to smell the falafel carts. And he's slowing down? Jesus slowed down and the 12 must have rolled their eyes and put their hands on their hips. And that's because of the unspoken truth that they are following Jesus and they have an agenda. And so do I. I'm thinking I can't be the only one. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to keep in step with you where you're going. That is my great ambition. And I also have in mind a few things that that's going to mean for me along the way and a schedule of when I would like those things to come true along the way. See, we become aware of our typically hidden agenda when God takes an unexpected detour or slows down on the journey we're on with him. That's when we roll our eyes and put our hands on our hips because we've got an agenda and God is not cooperating I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back there. But Jesus just keeps going. (laughs) 
even with the eye rolling, and so we will too. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. That question. That's the next chapter for you, church. Uh, It's nearly an identical story. Jesus even instigates the healing by the same method through asking a question, only this time the question is much, much more personal. You see, do you believe that I can do this? That's a question about God. What do you want me to do for you? That's a question about me. It's one that targets the core of my being and invites me to vulnerably name that which I desire most from God. Most of us wouldn't even be aware of a desire this deep if we were not prompted to name it. But God is ruthlessly relational in his nature. He insists on digging deeper and deeper and deeper until he's hit the core wound that lives within each one of us because he insists on healing that runs all the way through. In the last chapter, God has asked us collectively and individually who we believe him to be. And in the next, the same God is getting much, much more personal with this community. And so I want to slow down and look at the movements of this healing because I believe this is where you will begin to find yourself in the story. Mark and Luke's Gospels uh, tell us the name of one of these two blind men that was by the roadside. His name is Bartimaeus. And names carried huge significance in ancient Hebrew culture. And so Bartimaeus is a name that literally means son of esteem or son of honor. You see, Bar means son, Timaeus means esteemed one or honored one. And so I wonder if Mark's trying to tell us something here. Was Bartimaeus the son of a wealthy, successful man? Was he the heir to a reputation and a status who didn't live up to his name? Who became a beggar outside the city gate instead of the successor that he was thought to be? A disappointment and a disgrace to the family certainly seems that way because his name doesn't match his identity. And if so, you can imagine the shame that he would have carried around. You see, there's a presenting issue that he carries on the surface. He's in need of healing, but there's also a deeper issue, a deeper need for healing that lives beneath the surface. He has an outward disability and he has a bruise on his sense of self, on his identity. The last leg of our journey, the one I've been describing, the more please one, that was built mainly on our strengths. It was about coming alive and experiencing more and offering God what we've gotten and watching him multiply it. And the next leg is gonna be built on our scars, on your blemishes, on your bruises. The healing of the injuries you've endured along the way will become the vessels of power that are given out to others. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Mercy, that's what they wanted. It's not what they got. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. So they asked for mercy, but they got compassion. And that's an upgrade because you can get mercy without compassion. It's a judge who offers a lenient sentence but still thinks the person's a disgrace. Or it's a CEO who can forgive an employee's mistake, not because of compassion, but just because she doesn't want to deal with HR. They asked for mercy. What they got was compassion. They wanted mercy. They wanted someone with power to remove their suffering and take it away. Jesus is merciful, but he's also more than merciful. He's compassionate. The English word compassion is the combination of two Latin words, which literally mean to suffer with. Compassion is co-suffering. 
So Jesus is merciful. He has the power to remove the suffering, and he does, but he removes it by entering into it with them. He suffers by their side, on their level. He does not merely sympathize. He deals with the problem, but he deals with it by love and not by power alone. That's compassion. So they asked for mercy, but they got compassion. Why? Because compassion is who he is. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That's how God introduced himself to Moses. That verse is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. It's the name for God that lived in the imagination of biblical author after biblical author, that person after person in every kind of circumstance from every generation and every culture was stunned by this one revelation of who he is, compassion. In biblical Hebrew, compassion is a word picture. It evokes uh, more of an image than it does a definition. It's the Hebrew word rachum, which literally translates as womb, as in the womb of a mother. Isaiah 49 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. So God is father. That gets all the PR, right? God as mother. That's what compassion means. When our older son Hank was born, something happened to Kirsten that didn't happen to me. It was one in the morning on August 13th, and she had labored for about 18 hours, and he was finally here. We were meeting our son, and thanks to some guy named Bradley and his method, I was quite involved in the whole process up to that point. But, and I cannot stress this enough, typically on this very day, I was not the one in labor. She was. And so when I met Hank, it was a moment, but it was also a moment. I met him and I held him for a couple seconds and I passed him off and I fell asleep on her hospital bed. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. She didn't sleep the night before and she didn't sleep that night either. She just stayed up all night making googly eyes at this little guy. This little guy who had so far only greatly discomforted her for nine months, then suddenly forced unthinkable pain on her and refused to let her sleep. And it did not get a whole lot better after that. I mean, in the days that followed, Hank continued to wreak havoc on her physical body, jacked up her hormones, stole her social life, essentially locked her as a prisoner inside of her own home, refused to let her sleep for more than an hour at any given time, insisted on an absurd amount of just right conditions to take a very short nap, and decided that he hated, and I mean despised, the effortlessly cute bassinet she had meticulously picked out for him. And so she would walk around the street holding him in one hand and pushing a stroller in the other. I remember this one really beautiful fall day in Brooklyn uh, a couple years later where she took Hank to the playground at McGoldrick Park. And the kids were playing together, and she was sitting there on a park bench like one of those like Brooklyn moms that just has it all together but isn't trying very hard and probably works in fashion on the side and you know, all those things, sipping a single-origin cup of coffee that had been harvested yesterday, and they somehow just got it here. I mean, it was perfect. And uh, Hank was a little bit older at this point. He was potty training, and he had gotten up to the top of the slide and was about to go down, but he had a sudden need to pee. And so he made the logical decision as a kid who's potty training and decided to relieve himself off the edge of the playground onto the ground below. Only it wasn't onto the ground below. And so Kirsten's laid-back, beautiful fall day was interrupted by an irate, expletive-laced, screaming rant 
from the mother of the little girl whose head my son was relieving himself on from the slide tower. She disposed of the coffee and left the park embarrassed. Now, Kirsten is a lucky woman. Uh, She's got plenty of friends, amazing friends. But if any one of her friends took a horrendous toll on her body, rearranged her hormones, refused to let her have her own social life, locked her away as a prisoner in her own home, woke her up every time she dozed off to sleep and openly hated the most expensive gift she'd ever given them, and then publicly embarrassed her willingly, she'd really struggle to like that person, let alone love them. And so here is a great mystery that is written into the human condition that we see all around us all the time, that Hank did all of those terrible things to her repeatedly, and she still likes him. Likes him more than she's ever liked anyone before him. Loves him. Loves him in a way that he cannot lose, even though he's tried so hard and will keep trying. Loves him no matter what. Loves him constantly and obsessively and completely. What is that? Rahum. Compassion. It's the love of a mother for a child. You see, this word, it directs our attention not to the intellect, but into the gut. Because compassion is an instinctive response. It's deeper than logic. It's not weighing the evidence and circumstances and conditions and deciding, you know, compassion feels like the appropriate response given the situation. It's unconscious. It is the unconscious response despite all of the evidence. Everything our children go through, they drag her through with them. They cannot shake her. And she does not evaluate if it's worth it. Why not? Because compassion is who she is to them. Co-suffering, that's her gut instinct. It's her very nature, and that's who God is. A couple weeks ago, I was in Charleston visiting my folks. And I uh, was walking to the grocery store, and I noticed this woman who was just standing there in the parking lot. And she looked terribly out of place. She wasn't even going in. And she looked out of place because this was a really uppity, well-to-do suburb. It was full of like massive SUVs and moms in yoga pants, you know, like that scene. And this woman was significantly overweight, leaning against a really beat up, very old minivan, wearing tattered clothes. In terms of visible indicators of status, she looked out of place. And she wasn't going in. She, she was waiting in a grocery store parking lot, but didn't seem intent on buying any groceries. It seemed she had gone a long way out of her way to get here, but didn't have an agenda once she had arrived. And then on my way out, I noticed her again as I'm carrying my grocery bag. She was talking to a mentally handicapped employee of this grocery store who was wrangling the shopping carts that were kind of littered all over the parking lot outside. And he was listening intently to her. And I had to walk right past them on the way to my car. And as I passed them, I heard what she was saying to him. She said, now don't forget to drink plenty of fluids because it's going to get hotter and hotter uh, as the day goes on. And you're going to be out here a whole lot. And he says, okay, mom. And uh, I didn't drive off right away. I sat there in the parking lot, speechless, because it was such a stunning picture of love, of this mom who was just waiting in the public's grocery store parking lot for her adult son, just stealing a moment just to make sure that he was okay in the middle of his shift, 
remind him to take care of himself, proud of him for landing a job, but also sitting at home worried sick about him. So she drove here and just waited for a second to check in on him. Compassion. That's what I was seeing. And that's who God is. And I don't want you to mistake this as like some drummed up sentiment. This is all throughout the biblical story. I mean, just retrace the steps Jesus took to get to Bartimaeus. This is what we read in Matthew 9. When when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Compassion is who he is. It's the word Jesus used to describe the good Samaritan, who, the way that he looked on the beaten man by the roadside. It's the word the father of the unhealed epileptic boy who was confessing doubt used to describe Jesus and the healing that was needed for his child. It's at the center of the tear-jerking scene of Jesus' most famous story when the father runs out to meet his lost son. And it says, while the father was still a long way off, or the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's compassion, and that's who he is. 80% of the time, the word compassion is used in the biblical story. It's used to refer to God's character. Not to an action, not to a situation, not to a circumstance, to God himself. Because compassion is who he is. And in the last chapter, church, you have been propelled by God's call, by his vision, by his wild invitation through risk. You have known the thrill of following him, and in the next, you're going to discover his deep, bleeding heart of compassion. A word that is so profound, it cannot be explained, it can only be experienced. And here's what the experience of his compassion is like. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. So what's the first thing the two saw when they opened their eyes? It was the face of Jesus looking back at them. See, when he touched their eyes, uh, uh, when he touched these two blind men's eyes, when suddenly their vision corrected itself and light flooded the darkness for them for the first time in forever, the first thing they beheld was the gaze of Jesus compassionately gazing on them. A.W. Tozer has those famous words that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Jesus says over and over through story, metaphor, imagery, and gritty, down-to-earth, real-life situation, compassion. That's who I am. And to not believe that, to mistake the identity of the God who longs to heal you, to never know the compassionate gaze with which he looks at you, at you, there's no tragedy greater than that. And yet experientially, don't believe and can't receive are the exact same condition. I mean, there's plenty of us within the church who would say amen when when I'm talking about compassion being the identity of God who have never had the experience of his compassion, who have never seen the expression on his face when he locks eyes with you. So what is it that drives this message about God's identity from our head, like good theology in our heads, to a revelation down in our hearts? What's the experience of his compassion that goes deeper than intellect and touches that place in our gut? It's this, before I was seeing him, he was seeing me. That's what happened to those blind men. They opened their eyes and realized that he was already looking at them. Before I ever saw him, he saw me. 
That's what hit these two when they finally saw Jesus, that before I go looking for God, he's looking for me. Before I can form it into a prayer request, God's already working on answering it. Before I hit rock bottom, he's already there waiting on me to bottom out. They saw Jesus, and that's when they realized that they had always been seen by Jesus. And this is how the story's been working from the very beginning. I mean, all the way back at the beginning of redemption, God begins his story with one family. He starts redemption with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. God promises a child to this old barren couple, a miracle that's going to multiply and multiply until it writes every wrong. But like Jesus on the way to his own victory parade, God was too slow. And they had an agenda. So they grew impatient. And Sarah took things into her own hands by giving her husband, her slave, Hagar, to sleep with. That was her solution for getting God where God told her he was going on her timetable. And sadly, in the ancient world, that was a common occurrence. It was widely accepted in those days for a patriarch to sleep with the slaves that served his family. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that Jesus is always hanging out with prostitutes so much because in the first century, anyone of lower class was cons like legally considered available for prostitution. There were prostitutes everywhere in Jesus' day by legal definition. And tragically, Sarah's plan worked. Hagar got pregnant. Sarah then became overcome with jealousy, started abusing her, and so she fled the home. Homeless alone and pregnant, God goes and finds Hagar in the wilderness and he appears to her there. And she gave this name to the Lord that spoke to her in the wilderness. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. It's the first name given to God anywhere in the scripture. Before I was seeing him, he was seeing me. That's what Hagar discovered then. And it's what Bartimaeus discovered it's what we never stop discovering. And when she uh, discovered the God who had always seen her, she then heard his voice of invitation joining the gaze on his face. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Genesis 16.10. So God makes promises to Hagar. And in fact, they echo the very promises that God made to Abraham. She realizes that she's seen by God, that she's always been seen by God, and she realizes then, too, that she has an equal role in God's redemption story. Back to Bartimaeus and his friend. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. So when Bartimaeus, the disgraced failure who didn't live up to the family name, realizes that he's invited, he, a disgraced, ashamed beggar, is given the same invitation, follow me, the same blessing that was spoken over Peter, James, and John. He realizes that he equally is a cast member in the redemption story of God when he sees the one who's already seen him. That's the experience of his compassion. That's what drives the theology in our heads down to a revelation in our hearts. It's what opens our eyes up so that we can truly see. Those of you who count yourselves out, assuming that you're an extra somewhere in the background of what God is doing while other people play more prominent roles in the front, you will be woken up by discovering the simplest of truths. That before you ever saw him, he was already seeing you. And in the days ahead, those who count themselves out 
those who assume themselves unlikely candidates, too far gone, too rough around the edges, too complicated to fit into a, a neat and tidy community like this, and we're going to begin finding healing here. I could hardly believe it, but I heard him say it. He invited me to walk shoulder to shoulder with this company that I thought was too exclusive for me. That's the story he's writing here now. He chose me too. So I'll close with this today. I want to go back to those eye-rolling, hip-holding disciples while Jesus is doing all this healing. That bit that I told you to hang on to. They knew that Jesus was intentional. They were the ones listening when he set out resolutely for Jerusalem. They heard him repeatedly clarify his call and his, his mission to die in the name of love. They listened to him teach and walk every step of that very intentional journey toward redemptive royalty. They knew Jesus was intentional, but along the way they discovered that he was also interruptible. You see, it's true. Jesus did set out resolutely for Jerusalem, and it's equally true that he stopped and slowed down all along the way. He stopped for Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He stopped for a couple blind beggars outside Jericho. He stopped in Bethany for dinner in the home of Simon the leper. That's the way the king comes into his kingdom. He shows us a God who is equally intentional and interruptible. You see, Peter and John were convinced that he was going to sit on a throne. They were convinced that they were in the middle of a victory parade. And in fact, Jesus was on his way to die. So were they misguided or were they egotistical or they like unbearably type A? No, they were right. Jesus was going to reign. He was going to establish a kingdom. It just so happens that this king's reign and his kingdom and the way that he rules over it involves plenty of interruptions. That's the part that Peter and John hadn't gotten yet. You see, they rolled their eyes because they had grown intentional like their rabbi, but they were yet to grow interruptible like their rabbi. And the last season of this church, it's been about us becoming intentional and the next is going to be about you becoming interruptible. In Acts chapter 3, just a few pages ahead, Peter and John are on their way to the temple. It's the exact same temple where Jesus' march to Jerusalem ended. And they're on their way in, and they notice a paralyzed beggar outside. And they still had an agenda. I mean, at this time, they're leading the largest spiritual movement in history, statistically speaking, and they're there to preach the sermon and lead the community in worship. They've got a lot going on. They're pretty important. They're intentional. But their God is interruptible. And so they stop on their way into the temple. They give this guy the time of day and they heal this lame beggar on the temple steps. And then he, the lame beggar, is dancing in front during the opening worship song as they begin that Sunday service because they had grown interruptible just like their rabbi. When Jesus healed Bartimaeus, it wasn't just Bartimaeus that recovered his sight. It was also the eye-rolling disciples who thought they knew where God was going but had no idea how he was going to get there. And on the day Bartimaeus' eyes were opened, so were Peter's and John's. In the last chapter, the greatest moments happened in here. And who we became out there was incubated in here. But in the next, the greatest moments that happen in here will be the stories of how God is interrupting us out there. 
Let's stand together and respond. If you're at home, I want to invite you to stand as well. I know it's weird, but it's our sincere belief that God is the same everywhere, that he's not limited by anything. So wherever you are, will you stand and and just get into whatever posture of prayer feels honest to you? And just join me in this simple invitation. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. God, I pray that that rhema word that comes from your lips would just begin to rise to the surface in each individual heart and that everything else would fall away. Would you make your invitation clear? Holy Spirit, come. Since this invitation from God for us to just remember who we are today as a people, just as we're waiting on the Lord, I'm thinking about a song of songs. When Jesus, uh, the imagery of Jesus in this book, when, when he goes and knocks on the door, it says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. And then the response comes from inside the home. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? It's basically this picture of God knocking, longing to come in, longing to be encountered and to be known. But it's like, I've already moved on. Do I need to go back there again? I've already blocked that bit out. I've I've pushed that away. That's not on the surface for me anymore. Do I have to go back there again? And then it rolls on. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening, and my heart began to pound for him. It's this picture of God not being willing to be denied, demanding to be encountered. And I just wonder if that's happening thematically for our community today. If if God is demanding to be encountered and you can push him away if you want, but that as he is coming for you, there's this pounding in your heart that begins to long for him. And so we're gonna respond now. We're gonna remember who we are as a people and the God that we serve. So we put these prayer rugs back up at the front for the first time since before COVID. And if you're in the room, they're open to you to come and fall on your knees and be undone on or to dance on like it's a wedding reception dance floor in response to the God who seeks you. And uh, we just commissioned Rachel. So Rachel, why don't you come lead some prayer ministry for us up the front? Beck and Lindsay, will you join her just to minister to a few folks? Uh, We want to be available because we think that God's speaking, and we want to make space for you to respond. And we're going to not be in a hurry. We're going to enjoy delighting in his presence together, and we're going to stand up in the identity that God has given us as a people. 
So however God is speaking to you, church, you're now invited to respond. These rugs are open as just space set aside for you to come and to pray and to be before God on your own. And there's ministers and leaders from our prayer ministry that would love to come and minister to you. If you'd like someone to pray for you, come. But uh, if God is knocking and your heart is pounding, don't resist him. Come. Let's respond together.